Okay, so last week, we, uh, of course, we've been in, in Matthew 19, and I mentioned some things about the promises of God, and uh, it kind of stirred people. I was surprised by the, re- the response from last Sunday um, regarding those promises, and uh, something I didn't expect. Some people were very thankful uh, that I had brought those things up. Others were super curious for more. And then others were asking for a criteria or kind of a guide of how they could evaluate the different promises of God throughout the Bible to try to figure out, um, do they apply to me? Did God make those to me? And should I expect the fulfillment of those promises? So this morning, uh, I would like to address that some more, hopefully satisfy the, the, the curiosity that people have and establish a, a guide, a criteria to how to identify, you know, what promises apply where. Uh, But I don't just want to do that. If we're going to look at some of the promises, I'd like to um, look at them more deeply, even, I think, more responsibly, uh, that understand promises more specifically in general. So um, I don't have a text this morning. I'm going to finish uh, chapter 19, but we have one verse. So, but I still want to pray. So let's go ahead and stand up, if you would, and we'll pray. And by the way, I'm not going to get to all of the promises that you may be thinking about this morning. I'm gonna, uh, there was a lot that I wanted to do. There were some I wanted to pick on. Um, and I might mention something that you have used as a promise of God for yourself that's not. I don't mean to cause any problems. Okay? So I'll use the text to, to um, state the position. So anyway, let's pray. Uh, Father, we love you. And... Uh, Lord, all of us, I, I think, believe that the promises that you've given, uh, it's a serious matter. Um, but like anything else, um, there's context. And um, we need to know the context so that we can know how and to whom the, the promise applies. So I pray that you would bring clarity to all of this, even in this short time that we have, um, even with Roger's uh, record shortness and announcements. But uh, yeah, be with us this morning, we pray, and help us to see clearly from your word. So thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So last week, uh, from the scriptures, I demonstrated how God's promises to ethnic Israel under the first covenant that was ratified at Mount Sinai were and are in many ways the, you know, the opposite of God's promises to the church under the new covenant that was, of course, ratified at Mount Calvary. Um, so just kind of revisiting that a little bit for Israel's faithfulness to the covenant, for their obedience, uh, they were promised material blessing in this life. Uh, we could say health, wealth, prosperity, and national security in every regard. Remember, it's conditional for obedience, for faithfulness, to the covenant. Those were promises to them. They just had these miraculous promises to them. But for believers in Christ, Jesus promised us trials, tribulation, suffering, persecution for our faithfulness to Christ in this life. Paul said that if you just desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. We went over that last week. How many of you guys sent that in a card today, an encouragement card? somebody. It is a promise of God. And um, <laughs> I also discuss the dangers uh, of claiming 
and applying a promise of God to yourself when God did not make that promise to you. So we have to understand, if God did not make that promise to you, to me, to us, he has no obligation to keep that promise to you, to us. And we have no right to hold him to a promise that he didn't make to us. Amen? I mean, if I say to my daughter, uh, if, you, if you do these things, uh, I'll take you shopping for uh, a pink dress or whatever. Um, my boys better not <laughs> to think that that promise applies to them because they're just not allowed to wear pink dresses. But promises have context, right? They have an object. They have, yeah, you guys get it. Yeah. And, you know, the problem with expecting God to keep a promise to you that he didn't make to you could really damage your faith. And I've seen this countless times with people over the years where they find specifically, usually a promise in the Old Testament that regards health or prosperity, um, and um, they don't get it. And then they have a community around them uh, to tell them uh, that's because you're in sin, you're disobedient, which could be the case, but it may not be the case. And if you're going to say that somebody is in sin, you better be specific, as Matthew 18 says, correct? You have to be, yeah. The, the confusion about the promises of God happens for a number of reasons. Um, of course, there's, there could always be a misunderstanding. Um, there can be ignorance. Uh, you may have been brought up in a tradition uh, that teaches that all of the promises of God apply to you as a believer. Um, that's happened. Um, some people haven't um, quite got a handle on the two covenants and who the constituents are and what the obligations are. The, probably the biggest thing, and, and that's probably why it was taught in Sunday schools and, and, and reinforced to other people, is there's a, a theological presupposition that believes that the church has superseded, that they've replaced Israel, and therefore the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament uh, are passed to the church. We call it replacement theology. Uh, some replacement theologians don't like that term. Uh, they like supersessionism. Okay. <laughs> you can call it what you want. Yeah. Uh, now, that just creates many problems when it comes to the promises of God because if Israel was faithful to the covenant, they were protected, blessed, and all this other stuff in material things and in this life. Whereas uh, Christians, if they're faithful to the covenant, they're persecuted. They can lose everything. Uh, we find that in the book of Hebrews. They had all of their possessions taken from them. Uh, they, people were incarcerated. People were all of these things. Israel had no such uh, things said to them if they were faithful. Uh, so multiple promises to Israel are the exact opposite of what's given to us as the church. It can't be both and. It just can't be. Okay? And some have tried to solve the problem by you know, spiritualizing the promises of God in the Old Testament, but that just creates more problems and more inconsistencies. Okay? So let's, let's take a look. What is a good criteria to evaluate the promises of God? Uh, I just wrote down a few things real fast that I look at to evaluate. Whenever I come to a promise, it doesn't matter where it is in the Bible. Um, of course, always context is king. We say that often here. It's true. Uh, we want to look at the recipient uh, and these other things. So context, mind you, should always control the interpretation of every passage of Scripture. 
every commandment, every promise, or prophecy of Scripture. Context is king. If we interpret anything in Scripture contrary to the context, our interpretation is wrong. It's wrong, okay? And if we get the interpretation wrong, uh, it's, I can almost 100% guarantee that you'll get the application wrong, okay? The application of any text has to be within the parameters of the interpretation. It's also important to figure out you know, who God is speaking to, especially when God is making a promise or giving a commandment. Okay? Uh, is he telling me to do that? Right? I mean, God told Israel that they can't eat pork. He ain't telling me to do that. Not because I'm resisting his will or in violation of his, his covenant. It's just I'm not a part of that covenant. Okay? So I can eat pork because he never, he never put that in the covenant for me, the new covenant. Okay? I can eat... Well, I mean, I do eat. I like to eat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, who's God speaking to? Uh, When it comes to the promises of God, uh, the nature of the promise is very essential. Uh, By nature, we're looking for whether or not the promise is unilateral or collateral. I'll talk about those later. Uh, Conditional or unconditional. I like unconditional promises. How about you guys? Yeah. Uh, Those are necessary elements for understanding any promise. Also, the duration of a promise is important. Uh, Some promises are temporary, and some of them, uh, they're permanent. They have no expiration date. And then finally, we must, uh, by careful examination, uh, figure out from our criteria who it is that the promise applies to. Uh, Some of God's promises have universal application. Uh, One that comes to mind is, the promise of God that he will never destroy the earth again with a flood. That's to all people of all time. Amen? I sure hope so. Okay. Other promises are specific to a few individuals, like those made to the apostles okay, that we'll look at today, while other promises are made to one individual that don't apply to anyone else, like when God promised specific things he would do with Gideon to attack the Midianites. If you were to claim those promises for yourself, you would just be silly right? You'd just be silly. And still, there are promises that only apply to ethnic Israel, and there are promises that only apply to the church, okay? So to get started, I want to go back to Matthew 19, where we can apply some of these things, and then I'll actually finish the last verse. Fair enough? Then we can say we, we finish Matthew 19, and then we'll go to Matthew 20. So Matthew 19... Gabe, that's in the New Testament. Uh, 19, 27 through 30. I'll read it again to you. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now, I, I, I wanted to look over this again because we've studied it. You guys are familiar with the overall context, right? Unless you weren't here last Sunday or whatever. That's your fault. <laughs> yeah. So the greater context involves Jesus' discussion, remember, with the rich young ruler the rich young man, who Jesus promised treasures in heaven if the man sold all that he had and gave it to the poor and then followed Jesus. The rich man, of course, went away sad 
to which Jesus basically said, it's impossible for rich men to enter into heaven, but with God all things are possible. Peter then, in verse 27, piped up and asked, see, we have all, we have left all and followed you, therefore, what shall we have? What should we, the 12 disciples, look forward to, seeing that we have all left things to follow you? And to this question, Jesus initially responded to the 12 and then to all who have abandoned things for the sake of Christ. So what is the context? That's the first step in our criteria. Jesus is answering Peter's question regarding the 12 disciples who've left everything to follow him. And the answer comes in a promise. Okay? So the second step, who are the recipients of that promise? The, the recipients in verse 28 are who? We can do this exercise together. It's who? In verse 28, it's the 12 disciples. Jesus says, I say to you, he's responding to Peter who asked about we who have left everything to follow you. And then Jesus mentions 12 thrones appropriate to the 12. Amen? Yeah. And the third step in the criteria, what's the nature of the promise? Was it conditional or unconditional? Was it unilateral or collateral? Well, is there a condition embedded in the promises there? Absolutely. Yeah. To the 12 in verse 28, the promise is to those who have left and followed. Okay. Well, Judas is there. Well, Judas was with Jesus for three and a half years, but he didn't truly, wasn't truly following Jesus. And then he ended up betraying him, committing suicide, and then going, as the scriptures say, to his place, which is a reference to condemnation. So the condition wasn't met, was it? So it was conditional. In verse 29, the condition is essentially the same. The promise is to those who sacrifice for the sake of Christ in order to follow him. So it only applies to those who have done that. Okay. Fourth step in the criteria, what's the duration of the promises? Well, according to Revelation 20, which we visited last week, the 12 apostles will judge the 12 tribes of Israel, but that judgment seems to be one and done, right? They're there in the regeneration. Uh, they pass the judgment. It looks like, um, in, in that sense, they're actually honoring the martyrs. Uh, that came through uh, the great tribulation. So that promise seems to have an expiration date. Okay? As soon as the judgment is done, it's over. But the promise regarding the hundredfold and eternal life, they're permanent. They're permanent. Besides, um, how many think that you can inherit something eternally, temporarily? Okay, all right. Seems like a contradiction to me. Finally, fifth step, who do these promises apply to? So we have to distinguish this from the, the recipient of a promise. Because there are times when a, a promise of God does not apply to the one that received it, at least initially, okay? But applies to someone else, like when Isaiah received a promise from God uh, that Hezekiah would not die from his illness. It applied to Hezekiah, not to Isaiah who received it, okay? There's many examples, especially through the prophets like that. The promise in verse 28 as we've said, it only applies to the 12, okay? Jesus did not make this promise to anyone else, so it would be foolish to apply it to yourself, okay? If you apply this to yourself, uh, you're going to be disappointed in the regeneration because there's only 12 thrones and they're all gonna be occupied, okay? You get it? And if you sit on the throne before it's occupied, you're gonna get asked to leave, okay? So don't apply it to yourself. The promise of verse 29, it applies 
to everyone that has left things sacrificially to follow Jesus. That includes the disciples and every person who comes to faith in Christ and makes those sacrifices for his sake. They can expect a hundredfold in return and to inherit eternal life. Yeah. Is that pretty simple? There's some not so simple ones in the scriptures. Okay. Um, okay. Let me finish the last verse real quick. Okay. Before we go to the Old Testament and look at some passages. So Jesus concludes here, sort of, because chapter 20 is an illustration of this statement. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Okay, because of context, because it's, it, it must be foremost in understanding a passage. Those who are first in this life, okay, because of the context, I think that Jesus is talking about um, people like the rich young man who have enjoyed so much uh, that this life has to offer. It's as if they were prioritized. They were favored in this life. Many like him, Jesus say, will be last, perhaps uh, most likely from the context they'll be left out. Um, Jesus does not say all like him, does he? He says many, because with God, what's possible? All things, okay, within the context. But many like him, though they might get saved, they still struggle with their material things, so they might inherit eternal life, but might not enjoy so much of the hundredfold. Jesus also says that those who are last will be first. Um, the last then would be the, the opposite of this. Those who do not enjoy all that this life has to offer, but because they follow Jesus, they will thoroughly enjoy the hundredfold, uh, the, the, the eternal state. Okay? And as I said, this will be all illustrated in chapter 20. We'll get to that hopefully next week. Um, if I get a bombardment of emails, maybe I'll continue on with the promises. Um, okay, let's go to the Old Testament. You ready? Okay, go to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. I'll, I'll also read it to you. I copy and paste, just so you know, from the New King James Version. I didn't make anything up. Genesis 12, 1. This is probably the most detailed promise, the first extremely detailed promise. In the Bible. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what's the context of all this? Well, it actually is on the tail end of the confusion at the Tower of Babel. After that, God begins to focus his attention on the lineage of Shem. Okay? Shem was the firstborn of Noah, one of eight people that survived the flood. From Shem, the genealogy is traced to one man named Abram, who God we know later named Abraham. Okay? God focused his attention on one man, one man. God chose him. He isolated his genome in order to establish a unique people group who became originally the Hebrews, then the children of Israel, then they're known as the covenant people, and then eventually they become a nation through whom Christ was born, right? Was Jesus a Jew? Yes, okay. So the context is God calling one man out of all the men in the world. Do you think that sounds important? The God of the universe selects one person. 
And so Abraham, of course, is the recipient of this promise. Verse 1 says, now the Lord had said to Abram. Let's talk about the nature of these promises. Are they conditional or unconditional? You see any ifs in there? No. These promises are absolutely unconditional. God does not say to Abraham, if you do this or if you obey, I'll make you a great nation and so forth. But if you disobey, I will not make you a great nation. That's not in the conversation. No, God makes no demands on Abram. The promises are just completely unconditional. Uh, These promises are also unilateral. God is the only one speaking. And this is amazing. He places all of the obligation upon himself to fulfill these promises. Those are the promises I like to be made to me. No obligation on me, no conditions, all the obligations are on the one who makes the promise. God, okay? God is just simply making promises of what he will do for and with Abram, and Abram is going to be a passive recipient. There's no agreement okay, between them. There, Abraham doesn't say, he doesn't even say, okay. God reveals himself to him, speaks this to him, and Abraham just receives it. And he really has no clue of what any of it means, probably, has to unravel Uh, in some of his life and in history. So God speaks, Abraham listens. Who is really the recipient? God is speaking directly to Abram, but some of what is promised will not be experienced in his lifetime, okay? Um, Abraham does not witness the great nation that comes from him. He does not witness his name becoming as great as it has or how exactly he becomes a blessing. He does not experience how he becomes a blessing to all the families of the earth. And we know that that is because Christ was born of the seed of Abraham and that through Christ, the gospel has gone out, the gospel of salvation, forgiveness. But he does experience a little of what it means for God to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. The the Pharaoh or whoever was in Egypt at that time, um, even though Abraham was a little bit cowardly, took Sarah into his harem. What happened? What did God do to the household of the Pharaoh? It wasn't good. God was protecting Abram. He was protecting the, the lineage of Messiah, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So the greater fulfillment, though, of these promises are fulfilled to Abram's descendants. Uh, for example, the promise to bless those who bless and to curse those who curse, it's perpetuated to Jacob, of all people, Uh, Genesis 27, verse 29, and then to all the people of Israel, Numbers 24, verse 9. So next question, how long does the promise endure? What's the duration? Is there an expiration date? No, there's not, not in the scriptures. And the sense of the passage is not that God will make a great nation out of Abram's children, and then once that happens, the promise is fulfilled and done with. The opposite is actually true, Listen to what Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37 says. You don't have to go there. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above 
can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. He's saying, because it's the context of all this sin of Israel in Jeremiah. And there's this idea that because Israel has sinned and violated the covenant, that God therefore is done with them. Okay. Well, as far as I can tell, uh, the sun continues to shine by day and the moon by night. And therefore, unless God is a liar, the seed of Israel shall not cease from being a nation forever. Hmm. This is perpetuated again in Jeremiah 30, verse 11, in chapter 33, verse 20 through 26, Isaiah 54, 9 through 10, Zechariah, I can go on and on and on and on. Uh, Israel will remain a nation forever. Okay? So no expiration date on that puppy. So who specifically does this promise apply to in Genesis 12? I hope it's obvious, okay? Uh, The whole context in the passage is ethnic. It's ethnic to Abram and his physical descendants who are ethnic Israel. Just as a a note, every time the word Israel is used in the Old Testament, it always means ethnic Israel, the the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Of course, Jacob was renamed Israel, and he is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Every time the word Israel is used in the New Testament, it always refers to ethnic Israel. Some argue that Israel is just a term that is a general term that means the people of God, and therefore Israel today is the church. That's the supersessionism or replacement theology. But if that is true, if I, I, I would think that it says that somewhere in the New Testament. Some passage must say it explicitly that Israel does not mean ethnic Israel, but instead refers to all the people of God for all time. Uh, There's got to be something in the Bible to support that. I can't find anything. I'm aware of the passages that are used, but it contradicts the rest of Scripture and the passage used to support replacement theology. um, They do not mean what they insist that it means, especially in the overall context. And if Israel is the umbrella term for all God's people for all time, uh, in those same prophetic promises regarding Israel, what do the terms Judah and Joseph refer to? I mean, if we're going to just start assigning things, we've got we to gotta fix all the problems. <laughs> you can't just say one thing is this. Well, what about everything else? What do these terms mean? And what is the nation of Israel? You know what the nation of Israel is? It's really easy. It's the nation of Israel. Okay, yeah. No other sense uh, is in the passage. Okay, context is king. Let's look at another passage from the Old Testament. This is one of my pet peeves right here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I see this sticker on, or this, this verse on bumper stickers, uh, posters, and memes. Uh, I used to see it on Facebook when I, before I abandoned that platform. Uh, I've even seen it on a billboard. Yeah, it's a great verse. Uh, but it's, it's being improperly applied, okay? The context uh, follows Solomon's prayer, okay, before the dedication of the first temple. When it was completed, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said this to him in answer to his prayer, but there's something that precedes it that is important to the context that we must keep in mind. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I've heard your prayer. That's the prayer of 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And have chosen this place 
for myself as a house of sacrifice, when I shut up heaven, now see in Solomon's prayer, he says, (laughs) the prayer is very long. And he says, when you do these things to us, because we have sinned, please hear us when we repent and pray. Okay, that's very important. So God says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So it's an answer to prayer. Solomon When he prayed, it was very specific. You can go read it later. I would read it to you, but we don't have time for that. He was requesting that that God would restore Israel if they repented, and pay very close attention to this, after violating a number of the commandments specific to their covenant. If the children of Israel violate the commandments of the covenant that you made with them, that is super important. It's all considering violations of the covenant. If God were to stop the rain, if he were to bring the locusts or pestilence upon the land, it would be because of that breach, their breach of the covenant. And if they repented, it would mean that they returned to the covenant. They returned to the covenant for which God would heal their land. We'll come back to that. So real quick, what's the nature of the promise? Is it conditional or unconditional? It's conditional. It it begins with if and it proceeds with then. Kids love this. If, then. If you do this, then. Oh, I don't want to do the if. I just want then. So this is a conditional promise. Now, because it fits into the greater context of the covenant, as, as Solomon has made that clear, a covenant that God made with Israel, and the covenant made with Israel at Sinai is collateral. God made the covenant with them, and you know what Israel said? We will do all that you have said. We agree to all the terms. If I was there, I just feel like I would have said, no, 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 do not agree to that. Just ask for grace. Just ask for grace, okay? This is all conditional and collateral. What's the duration of the promise? Well, again, um, there is no expiration date in the text, okay? But we've already seen from the other scriptures, uh, we know that Israel remain a nation for how long? Forever, (laughs) the question really is, when do they get to enjoy the land forever? Because in order to enjoy the land, they had to keep the covenant. Well, will they ever be righteous for such a thing? It's an interesting question. Isaiah 60 verse 21 says, yes, the day is coming when they will all be righteous. By what means could they be righteous? Only by the imputed righteousness of Christ, okay? And then Isaiah says in the exact same breath, and they will inherit the land forever. So the day is coming, as Paul also says in Romans chapter 11, that all Israel will be saved, that God will turn ungodliness away from Israel, and then he will bring them to himself. And because he's promised them that if they do that, what will he do? He'll restore them and he'll heal their land. Concerning this whole context, Paul says of Israel in Romans eleven twenty five through 29, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And it's Israel 
ethnic, okay? Irrevocable. So this promise that God will forgive Israel remains until Israel fully repents. And then they'll just be in this permanent place with God because their righteousness will not be based upon their righteousness, as Paul says their problem is in Romans 9 and 10. But as he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. They will have the imputed righteousness of Christ. And because of Christ, they'll qualify. They'll meet the conditions. Yeah. So who, to whom does the verse apply? To Israel and Israel alone. Okay. God promised Israel in the law that if they disobeyed, he would cause a famine, bring the locusts and pestilence. And if that happened to Israel, it would be because of a breach of the covenant. But God also promised to restore them if they repented. God promised them discipline for disobedience, just as he does for us, Hebrews chapter 10, and blessing for obedience, just as that's true for us, but ours is not material. Okay? Okay. All that's repeated here as it relates to the covenant. Also, there's a reference to the land, uh, both here and in verse 20 of 2 Chronicles 7, where God calls it his land, which he gave to Israel. Isaiah 60 brings it up. Jeremiah uh, 31 does in many other places. Genesis chapter 12. Do you see how the promises are coming together? So the land is the land of Israel. The promise applies to ethnic Israel and to the land that God gave them. So if Israel repents, God will remove the famine, the locust pestilence from the land of Israel. He'll restore them to fellowship with himself and to all the covenant blessings. Therefore, God is not obligated to do this for the church because he has made no such promises to us if we humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from our wicked ways. We have no such covenant relationship with God. And you guys, it may be a bummer to you, but God has not promised any land to us. Well, let me take that back. He's promised the earth to us in the regeneration, but not the land of Israel, okay? You see, if God had made promises to us from this, then he would be in some sense obligated to heal the land wherever Christians are found if they pray, forsake their evil, and so forth. Now, it's true that God restores those who repent, amen? But he is not obligated to heal the land of America, okay, if the church repented. And I agree, the church has a lot to repent of in America, okay? So God isn't talking to the church about the church, and he's not talking about just any land on which Christians may dwell. He's talking about ethnic Israel, about Israel, and the land he gave them. Now, could God heal our land, America? Mm -hmm. And he may do that, but he would not do that because this promise obligated him to do it. You understand? Because it wasn't made to Christians about America or any other land. The church is just not in view here. So next time you see a bumper sticker, just, okay, keep praying and repenting. It's just not gonna happen. Okay, because of that promise. Now, as me and Roger were talking, um, if the church did repent from its compromise with culture, all of its immorality, would that impact our culture as a whole, the society? Of course it would. Of course it would. But it wouldn't be because God is obligated to by this particular promise. Okay? Instead of Christians appealing to this particular promise, uh, they should appeal to 1 John 1.9. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why should we go here instead? This was written by John the Apostle to New Covenant believers. It's a promise of restoration, of forgiveness, of cleansing for those who confess their sins. And the promise is based upon God's faithfulness and justice. But notice there's nothing said about the land. And there's no reference in the verse or in the greater context regarding the old covenant that was made to Israel. Okay? Because those things have nothing to do with us. And we really have nothing to do with them. They'll converge in the regeneration like we talked about last week. But our covenants are just so different. Okay? So it applies specifically to you and I, okay? the constituents of the new covenant by faith. So if Christians want to point to 2 Chronicles 7.14 as proof that God restores the repentant, fine. That's true, fine. But if Christians point to that passage and say that it applies to us and the land of America, they are wrong. They're mistaken. Okay? We're not Israel. The land of Canaan was not promised to us. And we're not in that covenant relationship with God. Let's go to the New Testament real quick. Philippians 1.6. I prefer the New Testament promises. Um, Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Not just a flowery verse. Not just sentiment. <laughs> this is amazing. For those of you that are discouraged that you've come to faith, you stumble, you struggle, guess what? Jesus will complete his work in you. Okay, you will. So the passage lies at the beginning of, of course, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. He's greeting them. He's praying for them. He's encouraging them. And I love it that within the first section, Paul just throws out this amazing promise to the church. Okay, Philippian believers are the recipient here. What is interesting is that the promise to bring to completion uh, those he has started a work in, this is unconditional. I love it. And everywhere we find this in the New Testament, it's unconditional. I like it. Okay? There's no if in the passage. There's just the promise that it will be fulfilled. Of course, the consummation of the fulfillment is the day of Christ. And they will maintain that state of completeness for eternity. We will be to the praise of his glory when he's done with us. It will be amazing. So, of course, who does it apply to? It applies to the Philippians. The Holy Spirit gave the promise to them through the Apostle Paul, but it's not limited to them. This is a general promise to all Christians. It was written to the church in Philippi, but it's universally applied to all believers. We know this because the same concept is taught throughout the New Testament. Okay? Starting a work and finishing it, it speaks of the doctrine of sanctification, this process by where the Holy Spirit is conforming us to the image of Christ. Okay? We're a work in progress. It's going to come to completion. Scripture says that we're a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. We arrive there by faith in Christ through regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And then by a work of his grace, it says he will ultimately present us faultless before his throne. Jude 1.24. He intends to sanctify us completely. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. From glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Hebrews 10.14 says that by, by one offering, speaking of Jesus' atonement, his blood offering on Calvary, he has forever perfected those who are being sanctified. 
being sanctified, this process. Our, our justification before God is perfect because the perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. But we still got problems when we come to faith. Amen? How many of you been in faith 30 years? You still got problems. Okay. But you are being sanctified. The work that he started, he's bringing it to completion. He saved us. He's conforming us. And then one day he'll present us before himself faultless. Some other promises. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I used to say, when you're in a fix, Ephesians 4, 6, or Philippians 4, 6, okay? Now, the context of this passage is, I think, so great, okay? Paul mentions it in, in, in the midst of conflict in relationships and our necessities, the conflict of relationships and our necessities. He begins the chapter by pleading with the church to help these two women get along, okay? Iodia and Syntyche. They had apparently helped Paul on some of his missionary journeys, but they're, they're currently at odds with one another, and they're in the church of Philippi. And Paul says, please, help these women get along, okay? <laughs> so the context of troubles and relationships, and then immediately after the promise, Paul talks about the necessities, his necessities, and that of the Philippian church. Interesting that Paul would encourage them to be anxious for nothing, but to be thankful and to be in prayer in the midst of our troubled relationships and our material necessities. Relationships and money. Any of those cause you anxiety? Yeah. But Paul first commands them to not be anxious, but instead be thankful, commit everything to God in prayer, and then his peace, which surpasses or it transcends our understanding, he says that will guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. But it is, is it conditional or unconditional, the promise? It's conditional, yeah. It's if you do this, then these will be the results. God will grant you transcending peace, even in the midst of difficult relationships and financial hardship. Mind you, the Jews, if they were obedient to the covenant, they wouldn't have to work because all those things were embedded in, in the covenant to them. Yeah. So this is conditional. The duration of the promise remains as long as we meet the condition. The promise applies to all Christians, not just Philippian believers. That can be uh, the same principles were taught by Jesus in Matthew 6. Amen? Don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Okay. All right. I love this one. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Remember, following the promise about the peace of God that transcends, he talks about money, okay? Now, this is a good one because it doesn't promise the wealth of the Old Testament. It doesn't promise the prosperity and all of that. That was a promise for them. Here, the promise to new covenant believers is that God will meet your needs. And trust me, our needs are far less than what we think. In Western culture, we are pampered and we're a bunch of pansies when it comes to our necessities, okay? I mean, the Wi-Fi goes down and the tea goes in the harbor, okay? It's just, goodness sakes, yeah. Let's finish with this one. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the, are the called according to his purpose. 
all things work together for good. This is the promise that I like half of it. I just like the good. Amen? Ultimately, all things in your life and my life, even the worst of our experiences, they're going to work together for good to those who love God, those called according to his purposes. How many guys like biscuits? How many would eat the ingredients all by themselves? Some baking soda? How about some buttermilk? How about a cup of flour? But all those things work together for what? For something yummy. That's right. It's all the things working together. That's what makes us nervous. We want all things always to be good and together. But that's just not possible because it would nullify the other promises of God to us about trials, tribulation, suffering, and persecution. Didn't Paul in this context just get done saying that our light affliction in this world is not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us? He's saying all those things, they come together. It's all working. And if we don't see the good in this life, as many have not, and we're not really promised that, it'll be worked out in the regeneration where we will receive a hundredfold and he inherit eternal life. Give me an example. Something that I think is the most beautiful illustration of all this is the life of Joseph. You know, he was sold as a slave by his brothers uh, to Midianite traders. I don't think that's too far out there. I had a brother I would have sold. And then he was sold then in Egypt to Potiphar. And then he was accused of sexual assault by Potiphar's wife. He was thrown into prison and forgotten until finally the Pharaoh got word that Joseph could interpret dreams. And then Joseph was promoted from prison to the second in command in the largest empire in the world at the time. And eventually reconciled to his father or his brothers and reunited with his dad. You know, Joseph suffered for years, but God was shaping all of Joseph's evil circumstances and shaping Joseph into the man of the hour through all of those terrible things by which he rescued that entire region of the world with the wisdom that God had given him. Yeah. And then Joseph even concludes with his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Yeah. The promises of God. We, as the new covenant people, we have much to look forward to as believers, but we can only look forward to what God has promised us. That's it. Okay, I got five minutes to close this, okay? I want to just give you some general principles, and you can take a mental note or you can write them down if you can. I can give them to you later. Just real quick, if you find a promise of God mentioned in, from Exodus 19 through Deuteronomy, from Exodus 19 to the end of Deuteronomy, generally speaking, that promise does not apply to you. That is the context of the Old Covenant, or as the book of Hebrews says, the First Covenant which has been made obsolete through the blood of Christ. It doesn't apply to you. Praise God it doesn't apply to you because if a fraction of it applies to you, it all does. That's Paul's argument, James's argument as well. Okay? Now, you might find some general promises in there about the character and behavior of God that apply to all people. But generally speaking, they don't apply to you. If you find a prophetic promise in the Old Testament prophets, it's most likely to Israel. Now in Jeremiah, the, the prophecy of the new covenant, yeah, the New Testament tells us that we're incorporated into that, but it wasn't to us, but we get to enjoy the benefits, of course, of the atonement of Christ. If you find what appears to be a promise in the book of Proverbs, 
it is probably not a promise. It appears to be a promise, but it's not, okay? It's a generalization, something that is often true, but not always true, and certainly not guaranteed. We often quote the Proverbs as if we're going to get a guaranteed outcome. For example, a soft answer turns away wrath, which is often true until it's not. Amen? The, the Proverbs even say, you rebuke a fool, don't rebuke a fool. He's saying, use discernment because you want a particular outcome, right? Okay. Train up a child in the way which they should go, and when they're old, they will not turn away. That is often true until it's not. How well do you think God did in the Garden of Eden bringing up Adam and Eve in the way that they should go? Did he do a perfect job? Please, everybody, say amen. Yes, he did. He did a perfect job. He's the perfect father, and we all know how it went, okay? Yeah. If you find a promise in the four Gospels, just make sure, as always, you pay attention to the context. Many promises there apply to believers today. Some do not, okay? Generally speaking, but not always, when promises are given in the book of Acts all the way to the book of the end of Jude, they're most often to the church, most often, but not always, okay? Romans 11 is an example where it doesn't apply to you, okay? When you come across a promise of God, always pay close attention to the context. Be mindful of what covenant it's related to. Be very mindful of covenant stuff, and you'll most likely get it right. I got one minute. There's obviously a lot more to talk about. Okay, I just wanted to provide you with some guidelines, a criteria, and um, if I went into all this stuff, we could, we could do weeks. I don't want it to distract us from Matthew. We've, we've had a few of those already. Um, there's a few promises coming up in the next few chapters of Matthew, so what we'll do is we'll use that as an opportunity to exercise our senses again. How's that? Okay. Now, if you have questions about uh, any promise of Scripture that you're not sure of, okay, uh, please chat with me. You can email me. And if it's a really difficult one, talk to Roger, okay? <laughs> Just stand up and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. And Lord, we want, we want everything that you offer to us. Your word says you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, whatever all that is. Um, I want it. And I want to glorify you with it. But Lord, help, me not to, help us not to trip up on things that you have not promised to us, which will just lead to disappointment and even shipwreck potentially in the faith, as so many people have. Lord, help us to be uh, careful, careful interpreters of your word. Help us to be mindful of any bias or presupposition that we might bring to the text and just let the text speak for itself in the context in which it's found. And Lord, when you give a promise to us, it applies to us, help us to run with it with all confidence because all of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and they are amen. So Lord, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, love you guys. Lord bless you.